Lord, we just sang, all I have is Christ, and that was what David sang in this psalm. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning to see what that means, to feel that deep in our hearts and our minds, to live it in reality in our lives, Lord, to think of you as our greatest treasure. Um, Lord, help us. We're weak. We're made of clay. Our hearts wander. But Lord, by your power, by the sealing of your Holy Spirit, we've been given a guarantee for a better inheritance. So may you build in us a desire to see that better inheritance. And Lord, this morning I want to pray for um, all of the houses that we caroled to over the last couple of weeks. Um, Lord, it just strikes me that we get to go out into the streets and to sweet melodies that everybody knows announce really good theology. Um, it just is, is an amazing thing that we still have that common grace in this country. And so, Lord, I pray for the people who heard us sing, Lord, that they would have um, this nostalgic, happy feeling about Christmas with carolers standing on their doorsteps. But, Lord, would you give them more? Would you give them real Christmas? And I pray that uh, everyone who heard us sing, Lord, that they would come to worship you. Uh, if they already know you, then I pray that their church is leading them well. If they don't know you yet, Lord, would you use Christmas, um, this cultural thing, uh, to, to grip their hearts and to draw them to yourself. And uh, Lord, we pray for that same thing for us now. Lord, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would use your word to grip our hearts, to draw us closer to you, and to help us put our trust in you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So um, third Sunday of Advent, we're still doing the Advent, Advent Psalms of Christ. Uh, last week, you remember we did Psalm 69. It was what we called an imprecatory psalm had a big chunk of curses on David's enemies right in the middle. And I was just surprised as we were working through it how we could have an imprecatory psalm be an Advent psalm of Christ. But um, what we saw in that was we, lear we learned a lot of things about them. Uh, we saw David surrounded by his enemies, just up to his neck. Do you remember that picture he painted? Up to his neck, his throat's dry, his eyes are growing dim. Even his hair reminds him of his enemies. He's in bad shape. And then what we saw that... Jesus has been surrounded by his enemies, and he didn't escape. He, he was killed by his enemies. He was, he was struck down by them. But because he is Jesus Christ, he rose again triumphantly over them. So even in the middle of this imprecatory psalm, we saw Jesus victorious. Jesus had, um, had sunk all the way down. He had died and, and risen again. We saw David curse his enemies, tell God, please destroy them. And what we saw with Jesus is Jesus was surrounded by his enemies and he broke their bond. He broke the worst thing that they could do to him. The worst they could do was kill him and he rose again. And what we saw was those imprecations, those, those curses that were announced were actually placed on Jesus' foes, the one who betrayed him and those who turned him over to be crucified is what the New Testament does. It applies it to them. And we heard about David being concerned about bearing reproach. And what we saw there was that Jesus has borne our reproach the reproach that we bear from other people, but also the reproach we deserve from God because we were sinners. And then finally, we saw the zeal for God's house consume not only David, but Jesus. And, and according to John chapter 2, that zeal led to Jesus telling the Pharisees, destroy this temple in three days, I will rise it up again. And so that was that resurrection promise in the midst of this, this imprecatory psalm. It was a very dark psalm, but had tremendous promise in it. This week, we couldn't pick a more opposite psalm. Last week was pretty long. I think it was like 32 verses. This one's pretty short. It's 11. 
Last week was imprecations, destroy my enemies. This week is nothing but exaltation of God. And uh, last week with Psalm 69, I said it was the most widely quoted psalm in the New Testament. What I meant by that is there are four different verses that are picked up and quoted in the New Testament. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 110. That's the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament, but it's one verse quoted a number of times. This one is quoted twice, but what is quoted is, is huge. It's really impactful. It's really important. So this week, our psalm is going to be a little different. Um, have you ever wondered what it would be like to hear a godly man's prayer, to see what a godly man's heart is all about? Well, that's what this psalm gives us. This is a psalm of David. And what we get from the New Testament is David wrote this. This isn't singing about David. This is something that David wrote. And David was one that God said, he is a man after my own heart. And so what we're going to see in Psalm 16 is the prayer of a man after God's own heart. So we get to sneak into his prayer closet and see what's going on. What we really see in that prayer is what the heart of a man who's after God's own heart looks like. And, and I think it's going to be really important for us because it lays a really good foundation for what, where we should be heading. This didn't change because David was in the Old Testament, we're in the New Testament. That's, that's not what happens. God's people have always been God's people. Um, one of the commentators, when he's describing this, this psalm, he said, this psalm begins with a brief petition for protection from God, or protection of God. The rest of the prayer is an exposition of that trust. The psalm teaches that trust is not merely a warm feeling or a passing impulse in a time of trouble. It is a structure of act and experience that opens one to the Lord as the supreme reality of life. So this is going to be about what it means to trust the Lord. And it's not like, I like what, what uh, the commentator said, it's not uh, a warm feeling or a passing impulse. And we'll see that from David. Now, Psalm 16 is one of the cornerstone portions of John Piper's ministry. And so John Piper preached a wonderful sermon on Psalm 16 titled, The Path to Full and Lasting Pleasure. I would commend that to you. Go find it on the internet and listen. This is John Piper unpacking for you what it means to make God your greatest. I'm not going to preach that sermon. <laughs> I am not John Piper. I'm not going to pretend to be John Piper. But uh, we're going to take a slightly different tack. But I would tell you, if you, if you want to get his perspective on it and you have an hour to listen, go, go listen to that sermon. It was really helpful, really insightful. Uh, we're going to take a slightly different approach, but I'm going to quote him. So I'm not preaching, but I'm going to borrow from him a little bit, okay? So when Paul read it, he read the title of the, ser of the psalm, A Midcom of David. And sometimes we can forget to include that when we're reading psalms, but that's part of the psalm. We don't have a Hebrew text that doesn't have that name. A mitkam is, we don't know what that word means. That's why it's left in Hebrew. We didn't translate it into anything. It's probably a musical term. It may be a, a type of music or a type of, uh, of song or something. We don't know. Um, but that's the title of it. And it says, of David. And I've said this before. When it says, of David, what does that mean? Does it mean of as in about? This is the tale of Gilligan's Island that's, telling that story. It's not written by Gilligan's Island. It's telling the story. Um, is it about, is it like David? It, this is something that David might have written. It is of the David type. Uh, well, like I already spilled the beans on this. Peter tells us in the New Testament, David wrote this. So when it says of David, in that case, it means this is something that David wrote. 
Um, so that's our title for it. Now, since this is nice and short, we'll go pretty much verse by verse through this and, and pick through and, and understand what it is. Then after we've gone through that, then we'll look at what is the New Testament application of this. So what I want to do at first is say, this is David's perspective on this psalm. This is David's experience as he writes this psalm. And then come back and pick it up and say, well, how does that affect, uh, how does the New, effect, New uh, Testament affect that? So he begins with a simple prayer, preserve me, O Lord. Preserve me, O God. He doesn't tell us what he wants to be preserved from. We'll come to that. What he says is, preserve me. And he turns to God in this. He doesn't say, I got to go hide someplace. He, he turns to his God and says, I need you to preserve me. I want you to keep a watch over me. And why would he turn to God? Because in you I have taken refuge. Therefore, Lord, since I take refuge in you, I want you to preserve me. I'm not running to anywhere else. I'm running strictly to you. And he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He says to the Lord, you notice that small caps, that's Yahweh, his covenant name. You are my Lord. That's the word Adonai, which means Lord, Master. Ruler over, over me. Adonai is used to speak to kings, as they would refer to them as lords. So he's looking to Yahweh and saying, you are my master. You're the one who's over me. I'm fleeing to you, and I want you to preserve me. I want you to watch over me. I want you to take care of me. And then he says, I have no good apart from you. And what he means by that is he's saying, all of the good that I have in my life has come from you. It's, it's been because you've given it to me. And all the good that I have in my life cannot measure to the good that I have in you. You are my good in my life. You are the thing that I treasure most in all of my life. So Lord, preserve me because I have fled to you. I run to you. I put my hope in you. I'm trusting that you will be the one who preserves me. What David is saying is, I've considered the options. And I'm banking everything on Yahweh and Yahweh alone. I don't have a plan B. If God is not who he says he is in his word, if he's not who he has shown himself to be throughout history in his word, I'm utterly lost. I have no other way to go. That is David's faith. Is he saying, Lord, I, the only thing I have is you. That's all I've got. I'm not going to trust anything else, nothing else. And this is biblical faith. This is what it means to be saved, is we turn to Jesus and we say, preserve me. I'm trusting you, and I am not trusting anything else. I am not trusting that I'm good enough. I'm not going to trust that I do enough good things. I'm not going to have another God in my back pocket as a backup in case you don't come through. You're saying, Lord, everything I have, everything I'm counting on for the future, and not just the future in this life, but eternity, I'm putting on you. Lord, I am fleeing to you. In you, I take refuge, and in nowhere else. It's a huge statement. This is the, the heart of a man who's after God's own heart. This is where his faith is, is, Lord, I want nothing else. So his, his trust, his hope, his desire is all in God. And listen to what he says next. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So does that mean that he's saying, well, the saints in the land, I delight in them even more than you because I put all my delight in them. 
That can't be. <laughs> it can't be, and you'll see why as we continue to go through this. What does he mean, in whom is all my delight? Well, first of all, the saints in the land. He's looking to his country, and he's saying, you know what, Lord? There's a lot of people in Israel. There's just a lot of folks. And I'm looking to all of the folks who are in Israel, and I'm looking to this group called the saints, the holy ones. Not just the people who come to temple, but the people who really genuinely love you. Because when we look at the history of Israel, it's not so great, is it? It comes and goes. They, they're with him. They're against him. They worship this guy. They worship that guy. They get back to Yahweh eventually. It's a mixed bag. What, what David is saying is, I'm looking to your holy ones, the ones who are walking according to your pattern. And that's who I want to be with. Those are the folks who I want to be with. They are excellent. And when I put my, all of my delight in them, what he's saying is, I don't put my delight in any of these other people. I'm only going with the religious folks, the Jesus freaks in Israel. That's the only ones I want to be with. I don't want to associate with these other folks. There's a practical reason for this. One reason is David has said, I'm banking everything on you, Yahweh. I put everything in you. If I then go and hang around with people who put their hope in other things, it's very tempting to draw my heart away from you to those other things because I see these other folks really making a big deal about it. And Lord, I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to hang out with them. They are not excellent. Lord, I need to be with people who are like me, who, who see you and say, that's what I want. Because that's the direction I want to go. I don't want to depart from it. So that, that's one of the reasons. There's a personal reason as well. David is saying, I love you, Lord. I love you with everything in me. I want nothing but you. You are all I have. Therefore... I love what you love. It would be odd to, to meet somebody to say, I really love you. I put everything in you. I've married you. I'm connected to you. But I can't stand any of the people you hang out with or your family. It would just be bizarre because you love this person. Your hearts are in line. So that's what David is saying is, Lord, I'm in line with you. So I love the people who you love. And the people who you love are the ones who are following after you, who are doing the same thing. So practically, I need them around me so that my heart doesn't wander. Personally, I delight being with them. I just love being with people who are so on fire for you. And so that's what we should be doing as well. Hang around with church folks. Spend a lot of time with church folks. You will pick up the habits and the, and the patterns from church folks. But if you spend most of your time with non-church folks, your heart will begin to wander down those paths. It just is. Now, I'm not saying never associate with them. That, that's not what I mean. But who is all your delight in? Do you love people who don't love the same things you love? Do you admire people who don't love the same things you don't love? Or do the first, the ones that take primary, primary position, are they those who love you, who delight in you? So here's what's going on. David says um, in the next verse, in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So those, that's why I don't hang around with them. They run after other gods, and their sorrows will multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or will I take their name on my lips. He's looking to the, the world around him, and he's saying, you know what? There are plenty of other gods. There are tons of other gods out there. And the people who chase after them, they're filled with sorrows. Their sorrows multiply. Now, does that mean that David has put his hope in Yahweh, and therefore everything's great? His life is just perfect. He has no troubles. 
He's in Yahweh. He's, he's, he's set. How does it begin? Preserve me. He's not saying, I don't have any problems. What he's saying is when people go after false gods, their sorrows multiply. They get bigger because, Yahweh, you can deliver me. And I know you can, and I know you will. So I may be going through troubles now, but my hope is in you. So my hope is you're going to come through for me. These other folks who are worshiping gods of stone and wood and gold, their sorrows are going to multiply because that God can't answer them. That God can't do a thing for them. So the one thing they put their whole hope in, their heart in, is a piece of wood. It can't deliver. So he says, their sorrows will multiply for those who run after other gods. If you depart from Yahweh, there's no hope. Your sorrows can only multiply. Their their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out. I'm not going to go worship other gods. I'm going to stay fast to the God that I know, nor will I take their name on my lips. Israel was odd. It was just weird. In the middle of the Middle East, there's this little nation of Israel. It was the only monotheistic religion, the only monotheistic nation in that entire world. All the nations around them believe in multiple gods. And there's a handful of them that get mentioned in the, in the Bible. Baal, Ashtoreth, Dagon, Moloch, the Egyptian gods, Nisroch, Shemash, Marduk, Milcom, Adremelech. There's just tons of these other false gods all around them. And David is looking out and he's saying, I'm, I'm not going to go with any of those options. So for us, it's easy to say, well, of course I wouldn't worship another god. You don't have the same number of options that David did. This is really unique for David to look out and say, no, none of them, none of them. Baal is really big. He's really popular. He is the god of the weak right now, and I'm turning away from him. I don't want anything to do with him. Asherah, boy, she is just hot. Everybody wants Asherah this this Christmas season. And, And he looks and he says, Yahweh, I don't want anything to do with any of that. I will not touch them. Now, when he says, I won't take their name on my lips, he's not saying, I will never utter the name Marduk. That's way too easy to say, well, I just won't say any other name. I won't mention any other God's name. That's, that's too easy. That has nothing to do with what's going on in your heart. What he's saying is, I won't name them when I need to call out, when I need to yell out, when I'm going to shout the exclamation of the one who's delivered me, it will not be any of those other names. I will not take those names on my lips. I won't sing praises to these other names. Only to Yahweh. He is the only one who I will turn to. So it's just way too easy to say, well, I just won't say Marduk. Well, fine, but where's your heart in all of that? Your heart could still be chasing after him. Your heart could sit there and just desire, look at how much they get in their temple, and I don't get that much in my temple, so I'm not going to say the name, but boy, my heart's tied to it. But David is saying, no, 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 I'm not even, I won't pour out drink offerings. I won't chase after them. I won't even, I would never name them. That, that's just not, that's beyond what I can consider. And this is why, this is, this is why he says that, verse 5, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What insanity for me to turn to one of these other false gods. The Lord is the one I've chosen. He is my chosen portion and my cup. He's the one that I'm going to and saying, Lord, I want more of you. I hold my cup of salvation up and I say, Lord, fill it again. Pour pour more in here. You are the one that I've chosen. You're the one that I've attached to. You're the one that I will be with. Now, when he says, you hold my lot, 
That does not mean a piece of land, a parking lot, an RV lot, a used car lot, something like that. What the lot was was as a way in the Old Covenant of determining God's will. You would cast the lot. So it's almost like rolling dice. Um, the, the high priest had these two things in the breastplate that he wore called the um and the fumen. And we don't have a clue what they were. But they would use those to determine what the Lord wanted. So, for example, in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, when they're trying to get the priesthood back together, they've lost some of the genealogical records and they can't tell, are you really a child of Levi? Should we put you in, in this role or not? And so what they decide is, we're going to have you just kind of not participate right now until a priest should arrive who has the um and the thummim. So they can roll the dice, if you will, and, and God will tell us if you're part of it. So that's what he's talking about is, is my lot. You hold my lot. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I trust in you because all of the random circumstances in my life, you hold in the palm of your hand. Every option, every obstacle, everything that has come about, Lord, is in your, you hold my lot in your hand. So when I throw the lot, when I try to determine, should I go this way or that way, Lord, that's in your hand. You are my portion, and you are the one who's been directing me. You've been the one who is showing me the direction, where I should go, what I should be doing. You have set up sovereignly all of my circumstances in life. Lord, my lot is in your hand. I trust in you. Now, verse 6 is a little bit trickier to define. It's got some, some interesting things here. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What are the lines? Um, what almost assuredly he's talking about there is the lines are the lines that they drew the inheritance on the promised land. They, when they invaded the promised land, they put these lines out and said, from this town to this town, that belongs to this tribe. So that's almost assuredly what he's talking about. And then he says, in pleasant places. So is he just looking to God and saying, all of these wonderful things, and by the way, you gave me a nice chunk of real estate. It's, that seems almost anticlimactic, like it's not quite there. He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, I told you I wasn't going to preach John Piper's sermon, and I'm not. But I am going to quote him, because I think he's right on this point. He defines it really well. He says, the lines here are probably borderlines. They may be figurative or literal or maybe both. He says, the borderlines may be figurative because the phrase pleasant places is a single Hebrew word that means pleasures. It's the very same word as the one in Psalm 116, verse 11, that's translated pleasures. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word places is not in the Hebrew. It's a translation decision. So he's, uh, Piper goes on, he says, so the translation here in Psalm 16, verse 6, should perhaps be, the lines have fallen for me in pleasures. I have a beautiful inheritance. So if he means these borderlines are not the actual physical borderlines of the plot of land that the son of Jesse got in Bethlehem, but he's saying, Lord, the, the area that you've defined in my life, the, the borders that you have laid out in my life, they, they fall in pleasures. You're not a spoil sport God. You're not a big cosmic killjoy who just wants me to be miserable all the time. Lord, everything that you've given me is a pleasure. Even the hardships that I go through, because once I make it through, once I'm delivered, I can look back and say, Yahweh, you did that. You're wonderful. So the, the, the lines that you've drawn for me, the plot of life that you have set out for me, 
is pleasurable. It's enjoyable. It's something I, I delight in. I have a beautiful inheritance. What awaits me is beautiful. It is not boring. It is not, I don't want to do that because it's no fun. It is a beautiful inheritance. I inherit great and wonderful things. So that's probably what he means about the lines falling into pleasant places and his inheritance being beautiful. He, he recognizes, Lord, the lot is in your hand. You, you have directed, you have constructed everything that's happening in my life. And as I look at where my path is, where I've landed, where I've wound up here, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's pleasures. It's not bad. You are my, cause, you are my, my, uh, my sovereign. You are my only hope. And you, I run and I put all my trust. I won't look at these other gods. And what I get is joy. What I get is delight. What I get is when opposition comes, I still have hope. My piece of wood, my, my clump of clay, my piece of gold isn't going to let me down because you're not that. You are Yahweh. You are there. You're walking with me. You're, you're taking me through all of this. And so his heart explodes in praise. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Lord, you have directed my path. You have Cause my lines to fall into pleasant places, and I will bless you because you give me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. When he says, the Lord has given me counsel, what he's looking at, what does he mean by counsel? Is God just kind of said, you know, David, I suggest you go this way. And market research indicates that this might be a better decision. That's not obviously not what he means. The way he's spoken of God so far as his sovereign, the lot is in your hand. What he's saying is, Lord, you give me counsel so that my lines fall in pleasant places. And if you read through the Psalms, one of the things you hear over and over again is, Lord, I delight in your word. Your, your word is a lamp unto my feet. The, the word of the Lord is pleasant. It is more desirable than, than honey from a honeycomb. So David is looking to God's word and saying, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking for. You give me counsel. You're showing me the way, the direction that I should be going in my life. You're leading me in the right way. Therefore, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Because I have trusted in the Lord, because he has given me counsel, because he's not just whispering in my ear or writing weird messages in the clouds, but he has given me his sure and true word. He's spoken to me. He's at my right hand and I won't be shaken. My kingdom cannot fail. It won't go anywhere. I'm going to be okay because, Lord, you have set my path. You have, you have drawn my lines for me. So then verses 9 and 10, therefore... So this is where I've been going. This is what's happening. Therefore, now we get to why does he say all of this? Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. When you stop and you stand back and you think about what has Yahweh done for you? What has the Lord done? Is he desirable? Is he delightful? Is he, is he beautiful? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Security to say, I know I'm going to be okay. Then verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So is David here saying, don't ever let me die? I, I, I don't think that's it because remember Nathan came to Daniel or to, to David. Nathan came to David and said, you're not going to build the temple for God. Your son is. But in the midst of it, he says, 
And when you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up a son of yours to sit on your throne forever. In that beautiful promise that his dynasty would continue is the promise, you're going to die. So what does David mean when he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption? I think what David is doing here is he's looking to Yahweh and he's saying, Lord, I know death is coming. I know that's, that's in the path that lies ahead. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me in death. Even in death, Lord, I want to be with you. So, so don't abandon my soul to Sheol. Don't abandon me in the place of the dead. That's why I think at the beginning he said, rescue me. Is he's, he's looking forward to his own death and he's saying, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm hoping in you. I'm hoping in nothing else. And so when he gets to this point, he says, don't abandon me in death. Of all the things in my life that I can control, the one I have absolutely zero control over is when I'm dead. That is when I actually have to trust you. I can't do a thing for myself at that point. So he turns to Yahweh and he says, don't abandon my soul to Sheol. Don't leave me at that point, nor let your Holy One see corruption. That's his hope. That's, that's where he's hoping in. That's what he wants. And so he says in the last verse, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Lord, I'm going to die, but you have given me the path to life. Death is inevitable. It comes to everybody. So far, it's scoring pretty much 100%. It's coming. But David looks and he goes, but you make the path of life known to me. There's life in this. And in your presence, Lord, that's where I ultimately want to be is in your presence. Because when I'm with you, when I see you, when I'm I'm standing beside you, there is fullness of joy. There is a delight in my heart. I always picture it as, you know how you always feel like something's just not right. There's just always something off. Even when you do the best thing that you could do, you look and you go, yeah, but there's that one last little, or am I just being engineer-like and wanting everything perfect. But there, it's, it's always almost perfect, but not quite. I, I think of that feeling that you have in your heart where you want to have it just right, and then you look at God and you go, that's it. That, this is what I was aiming for. He is perfect. Every single thing in him is exactly the way it should be. That's what my heart has been screaming for this whole time in this broken and twisted world is that perfection. At your right hand, or in your presence, is a fullness of joy. Yes, that's what I wanted, Lord. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't go to heaven and sit on a cloud, strumming a harp, wearing a white robe and going, okay, well, that first thousand years was okay, but now I'm bored. That can't satisfy. But to come into the throne room of God and to look at him and say, He's beautiful. He's magnificent. He is so infinite. He's so large. There is so much to him. We could spend eternity discovering one new wonderful thing after another. In his presence are pleasures forever. Everything in this world that you put your hope in eventually breaks down. If you put your hope in the car, eventually you're going to have to replace just about everything in it. And then even if you do that, at some point, you're too old to drive it anyway. So maybe you could sit in your, in your room and look out the window and go, that's a lovely car. It, it can't sustain. It can't hold up that pleasure forever. If you put your hope in your good looks, sorry, they fade. 
They just do. That's wrinkles appear where you never had a wrinkle before. My son texted me this week and he showed me a picture of his head and he goes, this is your fault. <laughs> it fades. It just fades. And if you put your hope in it, it's not big enough. It's not strong enough to sustain you forevermore. Money. If we learned anything from 2008, it's that money is not going to make it. In 2008, if you had a savings account or a retirement fund, you watch that baby plunge. It can't sustain it. It's not going to last. But if we do what our, our man who's after God's own heart does, if we say, Lord, I'm putting it all, I'm banking everything on you, what he's promising us here is the pleasures never end. He never lets you down. It never fades. It never gets boring. It never is like, oh, the same thing again. Didn't we do this last Tuesday? It's forever the, the pleasures increase. They only get better. So that's David's prayer. That's, that's the heart of a man who God himself said, this is a man after my own heart. May that be our heart as well. So how then is this a Christmas psalm? How is this an Advent psalm? Well, I mentioned that um, there are two places in the New Testament where this psalm gets quoted. And what both quotes do is incredible. Peter quotes it to explain why they're all speaking in tongues. Not because they're drunk. Uh, drunk people speak in tongues, but not human tongues. Mostly gibberish. He says, we're not drunk. That's not what's going on. And then Paul quotes it to explain why Jesus has to be. He can, he's the only one who could be the Messiah. That's how important it is. So here's what happens. In Acts chapter 2, Peter has, has come out. They bursted out of the upper room. They are preaching the gospel for the first time in church history. They are preaching Jesus in massive numbers. And the crowd goes, well, they're drunk. And so Peter's first task is to explain, no, read the book of Joel. Joel prophesied. He said this was going to happen. This is exactly what's going on. And here's his defense. He says in verse 25 of Act 2, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is here with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne forever, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In the midst of that promise, that, that, that beautiful promise that your hope fixed on God will never let you down, Peter picks this up and he says, David was a prophet. And he foresaw what was coming. He understood what it meant that his Holy One would not see corruption. He didn't have a clue when. He didn't understand the, the details. But he said, your Holy One is not going to rot in a tomb. So Lord, when you promised me that one of my descendants would sit on the throne forever, you didn't mean that metaphorically. It wasn't a picture of, of the David type sitting on the throne or something. Lord, there's one coming who is going to sit on my throne and he's going to last forever because you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Lord, I'm heading for the tomb. I've already got it marked out. I know where it is, right next to Dad. I'm dead. 
but the Holy One, the one that comes after me, Lord, you will, you've promised him, you will show him the way, you won't let him see corruption. And so then Paul in Acts chapter 13, remember, that wasn't that long ago, but you, you probably don't remember because it's been a while. So let me refresh you. Paul is on his first missionary journey. He goes through Crete. He heads north. He goes up to Antioch. And that's where Luke recorded for us his first message. And this is how he ends his message. He, he, he tells the crowd, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Paul looks to this promise that you will not let your Holy One see corruption, and he says, David's dead and gone. But here's the one who could sit on his throne. And what we get through him is, according to Peter, is we get the Holy Spirit. Because he is risen, he is ascended, he's not still in a tomb. He's gone into heaven and he sent forward his Holy Spirit upon his church. What we get from Paul is this Jesus whom they crucified, he's risen again, he's ascended into heaven, and he's sitting on David's throne. He is the only one that could possibly qualify to be the Messiah. He's the only one who won't rot. He's the only one who can fulfill that promise. So here's the question. Why was Jesus born on Christmas Day? And I think I've heard myself give this answer. He, why did he take on human form? Why did he take on humanity? Add flesh to his infiniteness. And I've said in the past, so that he could die. Because God as spirit cannot die. But when he adds to humanity to himself, he can die. That's not a bad answer. But it's only a portion of the answer. It's, it's only a small piece of the answer. It's not the fullness of why Jesus came on Christmas and added to himself humanity. The reason he took on flesh is so that he could die, so that he could cancel sin, so that he could defeat, defeat death, and then he could rise again in a body that would never corrupt, a body that will never decay. He physically rose from the, from the dead. He, he went to Thomas and said, see, look in my hands and my side. It's the same body that you saw hanging on a tree. It stands up now. You see, human nature was never intended to decay. Human nature, when God created us, he did not create us to die. And, and we weren't supposed to be that way. So what Jesus did is he comes to undo that. So in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is Jesus' infinity and humanity added to it to the point of death, even death on the cross. But what Jesus' resurrection secures for us is David's prayer. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not disembodied spirit floating on a cloud pleasures, but the pleasures that we were physically designed to enjoy, that, that we were physically built to have. So we can't imagine what that looks like. I can't, I can't even, I was, I was wanting this week to come up with some great word pictures to put around it. 
And you know what I came up with? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, that they, they were doomed to pass away. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has ignored or has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't put words around it. The, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of resurrection life, pleasures forevermore in the presence of the Lord, the Bible tells us you can't describe no eye has seen, no ear has heard. All we can do is, is imagine. But this idea of human nature is not intended to decay. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is probably the best place to go. How did we wind up in this boat? How did we wind up with bodies that fall apart, with, that get wrinkles and lose hair and, and sag in places they shouldn't sag and all of that? Why, where did we wind up with this kind of a body? 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, there you go. How do we wind up here? It, by a man came death. But there's promise in that. By, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. Death kills us. There's another man who came along to bring us resurrection. For as in Adam all die. Blame your dad. That's what my son did, right, with the hair. So I'm blaming my dad. Adam, you put us in this boat. It's, it's your fault. By, by at one man, death came, but by one man shall all be made alive. Redeemed human nature will surpass death. The way we're supposed to be, the way that we will be for eternity, is physical in a way that we haven't experienced it before. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. I'm going to pick and choose a couple of verses here, skip a little bit, try to summarize what he's saying. But listen to this. This is still 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What was sown perishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As were the men of dust, so also are those who are of the... Of the um, I'm sorry, let me say that again. As was the man of dust, so also were those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So do you get the picture he's painting here? There's a physical which rots and falls apart. But that's not it. That's not the final state. That's not the way it's supposed to be. There's a resurrection. If we're born after Adam, we eventually sag and fall apart and, and wind up turning to dust. We go back to dust. But if we're born after the image of the last Adam, then we inherit the, the resurrection. So never let anybody tell you resurrection of Jesus Christ was um, wishful thinking by the church, or it was a metaphor for the glories that could come if everybody just loved each other and followed the golden rule. That's nonsense. 1 Corinthians 15 says, we will be raised like him, which is not wishful thinking. It is a physical, actual, tangible rep uh, uh, resurrection. So let's tie this back to what David has been teaching us in Psalms, uh, Psalm 16. 
Where was his hope? Where was his, his only hope in everything? It rested exclusively in God. He, that's all he wanted. At the end of his life, he said, Lord, I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff. I won't name any false gods. I won't pour out any uh, libation offerings to them. Lord, all I want is you because at your right hand is pleasures forevermore. That's what consumed his heart. That's what consumed his thoughts with that's what I want. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, kind of paints this picture of the afterlife where he basically says, you pretty much get what you want. So if your desire in life is, I don't really want to be with God. I don't really you know, care about him. I don't want to be with his people. I, you know, I don't want any of that stuff. The paint, picture that Lewis paints in his book is people go and they live off alone, on their own, for eternity. And they, they, they withdraw from each other. They don't want to be with each other. They hide from each other. And so you're isolated and alone because that's what you've wanted, is you've wanted nothing to do with God. But for those who want to be with God, he paints this picture of reality is just so real now. The reality that, that existed in this life didn't feel real. He says even the grass hurts because it's so real now. And, and what happens is they go bounding off in this joyful pursuit of God for the rest of eternity because that's what their hearts had always wanted. That is where they had always been wanting to go. That's what was always on their mind was, I want to be with God. And so in the afterlife, that's what they do is they go and they pursue him. And David's promise in Psalm 16 is you will never get tired of that pursuit. You'll never grow weary from chasing him. You'll never grow bored from looking for him. Every step you take in this new reality gets better and better and better as you draw closer and closer to the true and the living God. I don't know about the choice thing. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I think it's a beautiful picture. Is if you have wanted all of your life to have nothing to do with God, God will certainly oblige that for you. And you'll be miserable for eternity. He's offered you the greatest thing that ever is, that ever was, that ever could be, and you go, yeah, I don't want that. I'll take a can of peaches. Rather than the steak dinner, rather than the, the lavish feast that he's laid out for the marriage feast of the lamb, you're going to go sit in a dark room with a can of peaches and, and try to be happy. This is impossible. So, so why then was Jesus born on Christmas Day? He was born to rescue his bride. He came after his people. He wants everybody to have that same heart that David has that says, Lord, all I want is you. I'm banking everything I have. I, there is no plan B, Lord. If I get to heaven and you're not there, I'm sunk. It just, it's not going to work. He came to rescue his bride. So Jesus, why was he born on Christmas Day? He came to live the life of obedience to God that his bride doesn't. Let's face it, we don't do it, do we? Our hearts do tend to wander. We tend to notice Moloch is looking pretty good this week, and then we chase our hearts away from that. We don't live that perfect life of obedience that, that we should. Jesus came taking on the form of a servant, taking human nature to live that perfect life. He came to bear the reproach that we were due. Because we constantly chase after other things, because our heart wanders, God is angry. He, he, there is a wrath that's coming. And so Jesus said, I'm coming to bear that reproach. I will take that burden on myself for my bride. I will suffer under it. I will do everything that would happen to her. I will suffer and die so that I can cancel that, so that my bride can be with me. So he came to live the life of obedience we couldn't. He came to bear the reproach that we should. 
He came to die the, de- die the death that we deserve. He came to die in our place. For he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And then he came back to life. Don't ever leave Jesus in the tomb. He came back to life because he had defeated our enemies. He came back to life to secure for us resurrection life, that reality that's beyond reality that we've experienced now. That physical resurrection, that body that never fades, that never goes away. And he's come to secure for us eternal intimacy with God. Not the fleeting thing that we see now. We get tastes of it now, and boy, we hope. But there's coming a day in the resurrection when we stand up with Jesus at the end that that, that delight will never diminish. It will never fade. It will, you will never be considering, well, maybe I should go do this. It just will never cross your mind because you'll have the fullness of what you were built to be. The first Adam is made out of dust. The last Adam gives us eternal life. That's why when we look at Christmas and we see this little baby in a manger, that's what that means. That baby came to do a tremendous thing. He came to bring you a tremendous gift. He came to bear something that you could never bear. And it happened not because Jesus beamed in at at the age of 45 or something, but because he, he experienced the entire human experience. He was born. He was raised. He grew up, he suffered, he died. He took it all for us so that we could have what he has given us in exchange, eternal life. Physicality the way it's supposed to be. Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. That's the promise of Christmas. That's why this is an Advent psalm. That's why we look in the New Testament and we see this, is because this is what Jesus, this is what our Jesus is offering us. Pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that the pleasures of this world sometimes look pretty good. They get pretty big. They seem to be satisfying. And yet, Lord, in in 50-something years that I've done this, they always eventually seem to fade. And yet, I chase after them one more time. Lord, would you tune my heart to sing your praise? Lord, would you fasten my heart on who you are and what you've done and lead me to enjoy the things that you've given me, recognize like David that all good things come from you. Every good thing that I have is is because of you, but Lord, you are my good. You are my ultimate good. Lord, I pray for all of us this Christmas season that you would stir in us a heart that says, God is my all. Help us to be satisfied in that. And Lord, I look forward to hanging out with these saints for all of eternity, staring at you and elbowing each other going, did you see that? Wasn't that incredible? I didn't know that about him. That was my experience, but it was never that good. So Lord, I pray that these excellent ones that you have surrounded us with, Lord, would you reign us all in together and move us as your people toward that great and beautiful eternity. At your right hand, we're pleasures forevermore. And we ask and we, we desire and we pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.